Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I'm excited to have Andrea to group on today. So Andrea is with FCC. And uh, so what is your official title, Andrea? Well, I've had two titles. So my original title was Agriculture Transition Specialist, and that's actually evolved to now we're known as business advisors. And the reality is that when you're dealing with transitions and succession, you also still need to deal with the business as a whole. So um, in in what they had saw was that it's actually better to be a business advisor than just specifically an agriculture transition specialist. Rather than, you know, pitching, pigeonholing yourself into one kind of aspect, that's a whole umbrella that you kind of fall under. Absolutely. A lot of times when you start to discuss transition, then the whole business needs to be reviewed, the whole business and how it's being managed. Uh, there's a lot of other questions that kind of come out at that same time. So our, my official title is business advisor now. So how did you get into it? Like, I know this is a pretty broad subject with transition and business uh, succession and things like that. So how did you, how did you kind of find your way into the the role that you're in now? Well, I started right out of university in the lending, agricultural lending world. So I did work with FCC for about 10 years. And in that, that time I was doing, um, working directly with farms. I did a little bit of um, adjudication. So that's the approval of the loans. And so I, I spent a lot of time at FCC understanding how they worked. And from there, I actually went to RBC and again, in their agriculture and commercial uh, lending world. So working directly, um, and in both of those cases, working directly with doing the execution of the transition plan. So when one generation was selling it to the next, I would be the person financing that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of operational knowledge from that kind of pers- perspective. And then I took a break from finance for a few years and worked within the Ontario Pork Industry Council and Ontario Pork, did a lot of work in terms of governance, um, communication, facilitation, that kind of area. And it really did balance out um this this wasn't where I was thinking I was going into this industry but um it's been a great fit and it's nice to be able to have that lending experience because I do know very clearly how these farms operate on a very granular detail like of of the, the monthly cash flows and that kind of thing um but also understanding there's people involved in here and and the skills that you know I was working with from a facilitation and, and HR perspective is really important um, to take the time to help and support the people that are involved in it. This is not just a technical asset transfer. There's a lot of people time and a lot of people involved in making this um, these these situations successful. I know, and these are this is a pretty daunting uh, subject to get into just because. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of people involved and a lot of feelings and emotions. And then there's a lot of money involved too. Like a lot of these farm operations now have, you know, seven and six, seven zeros behind the first number. Like (laughs) there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money involved. And I know uh, every time money gets involved with thing, it just, it just throws another monkey wrench into the deal. So for the listeners here, like, like we kind of mentioned, like transition is a big, broad subject, but I know you and I talked uh, just kind of in setting up the podcast. And one of the things that you mentioned that really doesn't get talked about is how, what are the steps before the transition plan? Because the transition is the end goal, like that, the succession, that's when the next generation takes the farm over and expands it and, and keeps it going. But like, what are the steps, like say somebody has, you know, kids in university or high school, that are thinking about taking over the farm. Like, where does that start? It's a great question, because I think the other daunting fact of this is these are family farms and they tend to be multi-generational. So you're not just starting with that one generation. So from from a starting point, it's it's important to think back to how their transition worked when they took it over from their parents, because, again, that is that's part of the story is that these farms have been passed from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. And then 
I find that some of the conversations either start, they recognize that. And so they're starting earlier and they're saying, here's some of the areas that in my personal transition didn't go very well. And a, a big part of that conversation is when those kids come come into the business, maybe they're not in an equity position where they're an owner, but they're coming home. You're wanting to take the time to make sure that everybody can work together. You know, those, those personalities, you can actually get stuff done on a day-to-day basis and make sure that they really are committed before you take that next step of, of bringing them into an equity or an ownership perspective. And so being really clear about the compensation. um, And, and this is one area that if you don't spend the time at the beginning having this conversation when they come into the business, those issues don't go away. But They'll probably they just fester. They do. <laughs> yeah. They just build over time. And then when you yeah. don't talk about them, when we sit down to have this transition conversation, all of a sudden, this is where some of those flames start to get. Um, and those expectations really come out. And in a lot of cases, not every situation, but in a lot of uh, farms that we look at and, and we're dealing with, they're paid under market value. And and they know it, like both generations recognize that. But at the same point, what's what's actually included in that compensation? Because there's your net cash that you're getting on a monthly basis. Um, mm-hmm. But there, there also tends to be maybe a house, maybe trucks, fuel, um, all of those other things that I call non-cash items. And this isn't about taking the time to actually, you know, claim this, claim them as benefits or anything like that, but taking the time to acknowledge what the true compensation is helps both sides. So from the junior generation, maybe when they come home and, and they're, you know, early twenties and their needs aren't very high because they're still living at home. Mom and mom still makes all their food. They they're living under the same roof. Their needs aren't very much, but at the same point, as they get older, if you don't have a process or you're not having that conversation about what that compensation, so what their salary is going to be if they move out, what's their salary going to be if they get married, um, what's and and starting to think about having their own personal um, financial affairs so that the the farm account that uh, is not just everybody's bank account. Piggy bank, yeah. Yeah, that there's some division between uh, mom and dad's personal and the farm. So there's a lot of farms that have gotten to that place where they have that separation. Um, and a lot of accountants are strongly encouraging that division between this is the farm account, this is the personal account, and same with the, the next gens. Um, how that actually happens on a month by month basis also depends because it depends on the strength of the farm. For, for some of these um, next gens, especially if they've come home and it's an expansion time, money's tight, they know that they're not getting their fair share. Mm-hmm. But this is where some of the expectations start to kind of bleed into the conversation because there's this, um, the idea flaunts by that, yes, you're going to work for less now, but this is going to be really yours. And we're, mm-hmm. we're going to figure that out later. And that idea starts to creep into both sides of that conversation. So it builds up a really big expectation about sweat equity or deferred income. But when there's no terms put around it, that expectation, both generations have different numbers, different ways of establishing that sweat equity or that deferred income. And that tends to come out closer to when we're getting having those heavier conversations well and i think too like if it's not on paper is it really real like like you come out of like i know what i was like when i came out of college i was full of piss and vinegar and i wanted like the world on fire and then life kind of kicks you in the face a little bit and gives you a little bit more i guess i don't know if modesty is the right word but you know it kind of knocks you down a peg or two i guess is what i'm trying to say and dad or mom are sitting there and saying, this kid's got all these ideas and no money. And I got all these, or I got all this money and no idea what to do with it type thing. And I think that, you know, what is the, what is the jumping off point where you have to sit down with, with the kids coming into school and kind of lay out a timeline? Like, is that something that, that producers are doing, or is that something that's maybe just a little bit overlooked? I would say some people are doing that, but not everybody. I'm having a lot more intentional conversations at this point where they're, they're coming home from school. 
Um, and, and the parents are worried about entitlement and are worried about um, having realistic expectations. And what's that timeline look like? And so if I can kind of go through, you know, topic by topic, one is that having this compensation conversation and, and encouraging the next generation to kind of live within their own personal limits. So maybe not treating the farm visa like it's their own personal visa, like mm-hmm. um, making sure that they pay their own visa bills, very granular details about things that they can do within their own comp- their own world. Because a lot of times when, when they come home, I also see mom helping them with their day-to-day financial manageable. Well, mom's already going to the bank. She can just deal with that. Mom's already in there dealing with the other farm visa. She can just pay mine too. Um, and it happens naturally. And I know even for the senior generation, if mom's doing that, there's no malice. There's no negative intent. It's just convenient. And if that's going to happen for a little bit, that's okay. But we need to kind of have a division of the relationship as well, because if you're, everything's connected to the mom and dad, the farm and the next generation gets pretty muddled. So when you're having that expectation, if they're treating the farm visa, like it's their own by extension, they're thinking all that farm equity is kind of their own too. So putting some limitations, what's personal, what's farm, what's mom and dad's personal. There's some, there's some intentional behaviors that would help that. The next step is to be really clear about, and and this is hard because if they come home saying, you know what, we're going to take two years or three years or whatever the case may be to say, we're going to test this out. So there's, there's no equity conversation for three years. You're here, you're an employee, you're learning the business, whatever the case may be for that situation. But then the next step is three years goes by in a hurry. This is where things tend to fall apart is after three years, mom and dad are like, well, I'm still not prepared to have that conversation because they're still full of piss and vinegar or whatever the case may be. And then it just, it goes silent. And that is, is a problem because we had a commitment. We had an agreement that after three years, we would have this conversation, not necessarily that the equity would transfer at that point, but after three years, we would have that conversation. And if it doesn't happen after that three years, this is also where I don't want to say resentment starts to build, but questions start to build. Like I I've made this commitment. I'm here. I'm working my butt off because that tends to happen too. what's going on. And in my experience, what's going on is farms have gotten big. They're really complicated. The expansion is no longer a million dollars. They start in multiples of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, right now, I know I've had some other circumstances where we, there was a plan in place and with the interest rates doing what they have, that plan has to be reevaluated because some of those options don't make business sense. And sometimes mom and dad carry that themselves. And they're like, well, we had a plan. It didn't work. Now we don't know what to do. So we're just not going to talk about it. And that is really difficult because the next generation want to have an idea of where they're going. And maybe it's three years, maybe it's five, whatever the case may be. But after that intentional, good, best played plans, then it goes quiet. And this is where things tend to go sideways. And then from the perspective of that entitlement, maybe they're stepping in and, and kind of talking like they own the place. I mean, I have, a, I, it's, it's part of agriculture too. I look at my own seven-year-old who he thinks this farm's pretty much his own right now. Like yeah. he's got it all. So it starts young. And, and you kind of want to almost instill that, but you're creating a monster. <laughs> that's right. So I'm, I'm kind of myself when I hear him talking about, like he's got his life planned out. He's going to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs and he's going to farm. So like, he's good, right? Have you told him that those two don't necessarily coincide with each other? No, exactly. I just want to support his yeah. idea. I'm like, good yeah. job, buddy. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. But that's the other part is this relationship doesn't just start at 20 when they come home to farm. There's a whole lot of water under that bridge and mm-hmm. they've been raised in farming. And I know even my older son, he's 11. He knows the equipment. He knows the values that he's talking about. 
And so in some ways, they've been desensitized to some of these larger numbers because yeah. they've grown. And so they feel comfortable in that world. And for some of the senior generations, when they were growing up, it was much more modest numbers. And so mm -hmm. when they're dealing with these 20 and 30 year olds that are very comfortable with multi-million dollar deals, they're not. And they're like, how did you get so comfortable? They grew up in it. And so there's a lot of that relationship dynamics that are coming to the table that are coming out in maybe less than awesome ways. But as parents, we, we, it's part of how we've gotten here. And so we have to figure out a way to, to manage the entitlement at the same time you want them, you want them to encourage to feel like they're vested in your business and that mm -hmm. they will be taking it over. So that's a balancing act. And then even with understanding what the sweat equity is, what's a real value versus what you're going to like, you're going to make more money as you take on more responsibility. It's not just about the hourly wage, right? And there will be a deferral. There's a patient capital that you're, you're going to get at a future, future date, but you have to put your time in. Well, I just think on the, like you talk about desensitized to some of these numbers, I think from the parent side of things, if they came through the seventies and eighties, realizing what 15, 18, 20% interest looks like, and they see their friends going bankrupt because they can't afford to make the payments like that creates a huge huge scar on your on your psyche and that's like history is a great a great teacher <laughs> and 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 they lived it right so you know I see it all the time is that kids full of piss and vinegar dad farmed through the 80s and just realized like hey we can't we can't do this or you know what maybe there is a little bit of rope that mom and dad can give the kid just to you know, go and, and try something and, and let them fail at it because dad's like, ah, I did that 20 years ago and it, and it didn't work then. And it's not going to work now. So. Well, yeah. And there's, I mean, we're having a lot of conversation about younger generation here, mm -hmm. but the reality is this idea of compensation and sweat equity, it's not limited to 20 and 30 year olds. I do see operations where mom and dad are really grandpa and grandma and they're in their 70s, and they still hold ownership of a huge amount of these assets. And so th that's a tougher conversation, because the sweat equity is all the equity they have, they've put everything into this business, they put everything into this farm. And they have 30 years, like there's some 50 year olds out there that don't really own too much in terms of the farm, because his parents or their parents lived through the 80s and mm -hmm. retaining ownership of those assets is a really big personal deal. Or I, I see situations like that too, where, you know, grandma and grandpa still own a big chunk of the thing. And, you know, the, the kids' parents are working on the farm and they don't necessarily have an equity stake in it. And they want to, you know, build a new barn or they want to buy a, buy a farm like that. And grandpa says, ah, we don't need that. But in reality, you probably need to expand a little bit if you're going to have something viable for the, the third generation coming in. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's a really big conversation. And, and when I sit down with families, one of those starting points that I always begin with is who owns the assets. And mm -hmm. for some people at the table, especially those, those really young guys, they may not understand that mom and dad actually don't have full ownership or full control of the, the farms themselves, because they didn't understand that grandpa and grandma still owned so much of it. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely common. Um, I, I don't have the stats for it, but it's, it's, it's a situation that we often have to, to talk through is how much maybe everything's in a corporation and, and mom and dad are really making those big decisions, but 50% of the chairs are still owned by grandpa and grandma. And more importantly, in some of those kind of situations, they might not know what's in grandpa and grandma's will. Yeah, that's the other thing too, because right? Like that hasn't been settled, right? And so, I mean, that's another whole conversation, but we it's not uncommon for multiple generations involved in these big families, and there's not clarity about what's how it's gonna happen. So you can't make that plan to make that next expansion whether it be a new barn or whatever the case may be because grandpa and grandma still have to settle out their estate to make sure they don't know what that is and 
unfortunately for that generation, a lot of them are really big on secrecy. They don't, they're not going to tell you what's in that will. And then you throw in the non-farming family members into the whole mixing pod. And it's just a whole convoluted, don't want to swear on the podcast, but a cluster, you know. (laughs) Messy. It's really messy. messy. It's very, very messy. Yeah. So like, just, I just want to circle back a little bit. Like, like when is the time to have that first conversation? Like, are you having it with your 10 or 11 year old kids? Are you talking to them in high school or coming out of university? Like what the, what the planners like are, or laying out some kind of, I wouldn't say straightforward lines, but you got to give some kind of guidelines where, you know, things are going to happen. A farm neighbor's farm comes up for sale or, you know, a farming accident, you know, there's lots of things that kind of caveats that get thrown in there that you have to kind of, you have to migrate around at that, at that time. Like, when do we have these conversations? Like is when's too early? I don't know that there's a time, like there's definitely a time to have to be too early at the same point. Like I look at my own situation and I'm a lot more mindful of the conversations I'm having with the kids and the way that we're preferencing it is we have a farm. You don't have to farm. You need to make your choice. And for the boys, because we have two older girls and then we have two younger boys and it's like girls or boys. That is a change like from one generation ago. I know I grew up on the farm and I was, I knew I was leaving because my brother was the farmer. That's mm-hmm. just how it went. There was, there wasn't even an assumption. There wasn't a question. That's just how it went. And so I know from my perspective, making that open-ended and saying, we don't know what this is going to be, but the girls do get a vote. So that I'd say definitely in this generation, that mindset has shifted. As you get into, you know, their high school and, and even into the university, the conversations tend to change and every farm is in a different circumstance. So I've seen some, some farms say, you know what, we're going to pay you X number of dollars, but we're not going to pay you all the money. We're going to retain some of that business, like some of your pay as a savings account in the farm. I mean, that's, that's relatively common. And then at that time, you know, you're, you're going to collect it. And if you want to take that out, that's fine. But if you want to leave it in, that's okay too. And so some farms are doing that where other people are saying, no, this is our farm. As parents, we get this until a certain date. And Mm -hmm. so if you work on this farm, you get paid no different than if we have another high school student in, um, And so I wouldn't say that there's one common across the board. This is how everybody's doing it. Um, I do encourage people to be mindful of how they're having the conversations and, you know, that, that empty promise or not, it's not even an empty promise, but a big promise of this will all be yours someday. Um, That, that tends to, to be. Well, a lot of things can change, right? Like. I know what I was like at 10 versus what I was like at 30 and very different people and different goals. Well, not necessarily goals, but different ideas of what you want to do. And, you know, maybe a kid comes home and maybe they thought they'd farm because it looked easy. And then they realize when they get knee deep in it, that Holy crap, I'm tied to this farm every day. You know, we're milking cows 365 days a year, you know, like it's a, it's a huge commitment. And maybe that, who knows who, maybe it's not them. Maybe they meet a partner that, you know, isn't, isn't into wanting to, wanting to be tied down to, to a farm lifestyle like that. Right. So 100% or even their world changes and yeah. different people's debt expectations. Like if you've gone through some different times and I mean, I, I'll, I'll think back to an actual dairy situation um, like as a bit of a story time. And this was back when I was lending. And so they were doing the, the, the new barn multi-million dollar expansion. Both the boys were going to be coming in and signing on the loan. They were all in, but that was mom and dad's idea. They were still early twenties and the, the older son, the older brother, I guess you would say he was all in, he was at a different lifestyle. I mean, he was only a couple years older than his younger brother, but he had a steady girlfriend. He was 
the cow guy. He wanted to be there. Um, and the younger guy was, he was, he was a fun, lively guy. He showed up for work, but he, he was, uh, he was having a lot of fun when he wasn't at work. So we showed up, I was doing some of the documents and getting everything signed. And the one brother's like, fine. And, and the other brother was really hesitant. And I said, like, what's going on? And he's like, I just want a big truck and beer right now. He's like, I don't want to sign a multi-million dollar loan. And I'm like, okay, we need to take a pause. One, that was a really honest comment. Like, yeah, he was, he was not quite 20. Like, you that's, can that's, that's signing your life or making a commitment on your life at 20 years old. Like, I didn't know what I wanted for lunch, let alone. No. Or doing that night, let alone the next 20 years. Right. And for <clears> him at 20, it's not that he didn't want to be a dairy farmer, but he really just, you know, like that wasn't his mentality. And it was a, those are big numbers. That was pretty yeah. daunting for them. And, and they had been involved in the conversations all the way up. The, the parents were kind of embarrassed and they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, we will change this. He needs to be comfortable in mm-hmm. order for him to be signing. Long story short, a couple of years later, he did join the business and they're, and they're doing great. But I think that's, it's a good reminder that two years or three years, because it wasn't even that short or long of a period, he needed that time to grow up, have some perspective, drive a really big truck. Like he needed all those things and that's okay. Um, so, and every kid's time frame is going to be different as well. You can have siblings and as parents, I'm sure you see this too. Like you can have them raised in the same situation and, and really be different people and that's okay. Yeah. Um, back to like a little bit about sweat equity and stuff. And I know one thing that we talk about all the time is uh, what's right and what's fair. Because if you're looking at, I've seen this situation enough times and I can imagine you see it every day, but you know, you've got non-farming siblings and the parents own the farm and they're saying, well, we're going to divide everything equally or, you know, you're going to get a cash payment or we're going to buy you a house in town and this kid's getting the farm. And then, you know, back to talking about, you know, multi-million dollar numbers, like it looks great on paper with all this equity, but you know, at the end of the day, when you sell, if you had to sell the farm, for instance, you got to pay the government and you got to pay the bank and you got to pay off, you know, everything to close up a corporation. And, you know, there's only so much pot left over. Like what's, I guess, what's right and what's fair with these kids? Like, how do you make that determination when you walk into a farm situation and, and start with this? This is a multi-million dollar question and it's, it's really hard. And so this is where it starts with some of those expectations, but in a lot of cases, this fair versus equal kind of conversation, that's what people that's, that's like that instigation where parents will pick up the phone, call somebody like me. We have to start talking this out. How do we deal with this? And the first thing that I do when I get into those kinds of conversations is who owns the assets? The parents. Mm-hmm. So have we addressed what your retirement looks like? Because if their first thought is the concern of how it's going to equalize out to the, the other kids, that's great. But first we have to make sure that mom and dad are okay. So what does their retirement look like? And a lot of times, especially, you know, those, those farmers who have worked all their life, they're like, it's modest. Now, in my examples and in my in my conversations, what's modest? modest? <laughs> modest can be everything from like fifty thousand dollars a year because they're going to live on the farm and they're they're going to die with their boots on kind of conversation. To I've had upwards of two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year being modest because mm-hmm. in retrospect they're looking at the total assets and these farms are big. So two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year when you grew a business to fifty million. It is modest from that viewpoint, mm-hmm. regardless of what that number is. That's one starting point is we need to make sure that mom and dad have a retirement. Or in some cases, we have grandpa and grandma's retirement that's are still being funded from this farm and mom and dad's. So let's start with, with that as a level one. A level two would be then what's actually going on in that business? Because 
common practice in agriculture, we're talking gross asset value. So we talk about the $25 million farm. Yeah. And, and in reality, it is worth $25 million. But if you sell that farm, you're not getting $25,000 cash. And well, you are, but then it's got to get divvied up well, to all the different stakeholders, right? All the de- you got to pay your debt, you got to pay taxes. Yeah. And that net value is very different than that gross big dollars. Um, and so sometimes talking in those gross values and that big total value is skewing some of those, like it's desensitizing people. Like I, I had one generation, uh, I was talking to a non-farm second generation family member and she's like, well, my expectation is like a million dollars. And she's like, mom and dad have had these farms forever. Like, of course they're paid for not being aware of the new barns, the new quota and everything else that's out there. They didn't, that, that second gen was in their forties. They had no clue of what's going on in that business. And in their mind, it's a $12 million operation. What's the big deal with a million dollars? Well, the reality is it's not net 12 million. We have maybe 5 million in debt. We're going to have maybe a couple million dollars in taxes if you were to pay everything out, right? And again, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the case. And we still have mom and dad who, if you're going to, you know, retirement is going to be $60,000 a year, that's 1.5 million if you were to retire at, you know, like 65 and live to 85 kind of thing. All of a sudden, when you put that in perspective, that million dollars is a really big dollar amount. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about it from the perspective of the $12 million in their minds, that's a doable step. So that whole gross versus net is a big conversation for starters. And that's about setting some expectations and what's, what's real. There's also this reality that that is, that's a big part of the conversation that it's an automatic that we're going to be shifting and we're going to be spreading all this equity evenly amongst all the kids. And that needs to come from the parents. Is that what they want? Is that what yeah. their expectations are? They own the assets. Um, because in many cases, mom and dad don't necessarily have that right. And that, or like have the same opinion and it will change. I, I've sat down with lots of families where at the beginning, mom's like, I want it to be really close to even. And then we start doing the math. And the reality is, if it's even that farm doesn't succeed. Yeah. And the dad in, in a lot of cases is saying I'm a third or fourth generation. I want this to go to the fifth generation. There's a lot of legacy involved in that kind of decision. Right. And, and do they have the right to just sell everything out in a lot of cases? That's something that that people struggle with. How does that work? Like some of some of these operations, like you're not going to sell them to a sole person. Like it's going to get, parted out like you know maybe some land's going to go to one neighbor and like like to buy like some of these numbers we're talking about like some of these farms just aren't saleable as a whole right i would agree at the same point there's there is different things going on in the world i mean we have a lot of urban sprawl pressure and i've seen some situations where you're selling your smaller operation closer to a city and then you're buying a larger operation and you're Mm -hmm. taking that equity from the from that legacy and you're taking it out as well as that increased value because you're, you're getting some development pressure and then you're reinvesting that back into a larger, more diversified farm somewhere else. That that's not uncommon. Um, But uh, as well, I I think this is going to be continuing conversation because with these interest rates, those big asset purchases are a lot trickier to, to make a reality. Like we're not at 3% anymore. We're not at two and a half percent anymore. Um, so some of those, that might be a limitation moving forward um, of how saleable some of these bigger operations really are as an entitled, like as an entire going concern kind of operation. Yeah. Sorry, I got, got you sidetracked there, but you were, we were talking about legacy and like that, yeah. like the parents are saying, well, if this farm gets split up like that it's the end of the family our family farm and then there's a lot of emotions at play so is that where things kind of go sideways or not necessarily sideways maybe that's not the right word but where you have to kind of call it audible and change your direction for the future 
there's a lot of different places it can go sideways. That's definitely one. Um, I, I know I've had some circumstances where I've been sitting at the table and they're, they're trying to make decisions about what the next step looks like. And it's always been a dairy farm, Mm -hmm. but the next generation is prepared to come home, but they maybe went to, to university. They, they won't have some kind of job outside of, they do not want the lifestyle that comes with dairy farming. And so they're, they're having some tough conversations about, do I continue as a dairy farm or does that make me still a farmer? Mm-hmm. Like if I sell the cows in quota and I retain the land or whatever, maybe that's even an emotional conversation because maybe you're a third or a fourth generation dairy farmer. And all of a sudden you being that person to sell the cows in quota, that's a, that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of emotion that goes into that. And it's, it's also a really important conversation because I, I'm sure you've seen it too, where there's an automatic expectation. We're building the barn, the next generation's coming home but maybe the next generation isn't so committed and the barn gets built. They like the new barn better than the old barn, but this still really is a lifestyle that they really. I see that all the time where, you know, the parents at 55, 60 years old are building a new barn in hopes that the next generation is going to come into the farm and enjoy it and, and live that lifestyle and work style that, that they're, that they did. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Or another situation where we've been using a lot of examples where one person has come home, where yeah. there's some situations where we have two people coming home. And while mom and dad are there to mediate and they're making the, the bigger decisions, the brothers are okay to continue or the brother and sister are okay to continue to, to work together. But has there been a conversation about do they want to be business partners? Yeah. And this is something that I bring up a lot. It's one thing to work for mom and dad and mom and dad be that, you know, like that overarching management team, but do they want to be business partners together? That's Mm -hmm. a different. And some siblings, honestly, this is where a lot of farms have that, that advantage is because the commitment to that family is very strong. They're prepared to really work together. Their personalities do mesh. And when you see that working well, it's awesome. Um, and we all know the stories of when it doesn't work well. Yeah. Um, you hear yeah. a lot more of those than you do the other way. <laughs> well, the bad news tr- tends to travel more too, right? Like yeah. if everybody's just getting along and doing their thing, you're not going to talk about it because it's a boring conversation. But when you have two siblings that are fighting, that tends to get talked about. More. It's like the lie makes it around the world before the truth gets out of bed. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, and yeah, like things change over the years, like what your transition or succession plan is today is going to be different than what it is tomorrow or five years or 10 years down the road, because like what you said, you know, there's other siblings, maybe they worked off the farm for, eight or 10 years and all of a sudden decide, you know what, maybe that lifestyle growing up wasn't so bad and I want to come back into the operation or, you know, you get married, you have a life partner, whatever, and the dynamics change and are constantly evolving. So. Well, and, and that example where maybe somebody comes home after 10 years, they've worked out, they've, they've off the farm for 10 years, maybe even in agriculture and then decide to come home. And then how do you deal with one sibling that stayed there for the duration and then have one sibling that came home and is jumping back in? And so oh. that's that conversation around sweat equity and how do you manage that is that, really critical. That one's pretty close to my heart because I have a friend that that did that as they worked and did what they were supposed to and got a job off the farm and then their sibling comes home a few years later and comes in like a tornado and starts trying to make management decisions and things like that. And essentially, yeah, they, uh, it hasn't gone well. And it's kind of living through that through, you know, a helicopter view of it is it's, it's sad. Like it's, but that's the reality. Like they didn't have things planned out. The parents' goals weren't clear um to the kids and you know mom and dad are gonna look after all their kids not just one of them really like at the end of the day 
So. And in those kinds of circumstances, it's really important. And this, this is a part of the, the management. So that succession plan of who's making the decisions, what's, what's the time expectation? Because that one, the one that stayed home, that stayed back, they've been going through the process of respecting the decision-making. They've kind of, I, I don't want to say it's been patient capital, but they have been more patient. If that other person jumps back in 10 years later and expects to be at the exact same point and not gone through that 10 years, mm -hmm. that's, that's tricky. Or another situation that I tend to see a lot of, especially with larger families. And if there's a huge age gap, just by the nature of when they were born and their ages, we have maybe an oldest brother and a, a youngest sister that are farming. But that oldest brother has already put 15 years in before that younger sister comes to the table. Yeah. And so then you almost have like four generations there because you might still have the grandparents, you have the parents, but that older brother is more of a like parental figure with a 15 year gap then they are a sibling. Mm -hmm. And then how do you, what's that decision-making? What's that respect? How do you deal with that dynamic? And in some of these larger operations, that's not uncommon. You have um, multiple generations of family and it's not, it doesn't follow evenly. Or another example of that would be that we've had, like we're, we're a sibling partnership. So we have two brothers and they have kids. And so mm -hmm. you have the coming into the play and there's a whole variation of ages within the, those groups. And especially for these larger farms, you want that committed labor. You want the cousins to come in, but cousins live and grow up in different houses. They have different expectations. They're not the same as siblings. And then how do we set up that management team to be, you know, decisive and make good decisions that takes a lot more process. You've got to be intentional about that to say, this is who's making the decisions. This is who like, and who gets to, you know, deal with things when they go sideways. Is it only the dad that gets to reprimand um, their own kids or does the uncle get to reprimand the nieces and nephews and vice versa so that they're not reprimanding their own kids. And there's like that one next level of um, separation between mom and dad and, and the next gens, it gets complicated really quickly. And again, all good intentions. It's just as these farms get bigger and you get more people involved, that's when having some clarity and having some time to have really intentional conversations about who's making decisions, who's dealing with the people and who owns the assets again. Yeah. Do you see differences? Like I know you don't just cover dairy from what you were kind of explaining to me before like you're in a whole bunch of different uh lanes i guess it is with agriculture whether it be greenhouse cash crop hogs poultry like you're all over the place like do you see differences between what is going on in one industry per se versus another uh sector of agriculture yeah so so that's the great part of this job is i'm not industry specific i'm not just you know, helping dairy farmers or pig farmers or cash crop. I get, I do get to jump in and out of all different kinds of industries as well as a bit of commercial agriculture. And so, um, you know, from looking from the outside in, like at a say greenhouse operation or, or some of those more commercial um, operations, it looks like it'll be different. They have management teams, they have a lot more staff. So they have a lot more, I'm going to say structure, Corporate, like a corp, more like a business than maybe a family, like, like a family dairy would be. Maybe uh, like some of the larger family dairies, I would say have evolved to that because they're quite large. So they you have to, have, have, you know, some of that kind of structure. It's too much for but, one person to run. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, even some of these really large, you know, family operations that might have multiple families, it's like, there's two different sets of rules. There's, there's for the employees and then the family and the family still in these large operations is still tricky because it's still family. So I'm like, I I've dealt with some really large greenhouse operations and, you know, you're talking 50 plus million revenue per year. Like these are large operations. And some of the questions, the concerns of how to deal with family, what's, you know, fair and equal. How do you deal with the family members that aren't involved in the business it's actually not that different 
which that then tends to lead to this is a family business dynamic. How are we managing the family and the business? Because those, the number of zeros involved, it does increase the expectations and some of the complications, but how we're going to deal with the family and who gets to be the family who's included in that conversation. It's tricky in all of those situations, not just Mm -hmm. the dairy farm, not just the grain farm, because I mean, I know. I've been in some really um, large conversations for Western producers as well that, you know, they all have 35,000 acres. Those are big numbers too. And that's a completely different lifestyle. Um, So there's some continuity around who's in the family. How is this family going to work as a family and as a business, or is it completely all together? And there's no division between what's a family concern and what's a business concern. And it's tricky. And it really does depend too on um, what's going on in terms of that um, expectation. So what was the previous generations? How did they deal with that? Because this is not a new issue. The numbers no. that we're dealing with are new. That, like there's a lot more zeros and and if you want to take a little bit of a perspective if you look back over the last number of years because the land prices have really been increasing and they've been increasing at a rate of like they've been doubling especially in southern ontario every seven years yeah that's, that's just that's insane it's it's just it's a huge so if you had you know a generation ago you had a good land base just the equity creation from owning that those assets just from owning the land in and of itself those are massive numbers now well and- just, just thinking about that like just as an example like if you have a kid coming out of university and you know there's three to four kids in the family by the time the youngest is out of university that land's doubled and that throws a huge wrench into things especially if you're talking about like freezing equity growth and things like that and successions right like, hey, we're going to put a freeze on equity today and all this, all the new equity that they're gaining is is the kids, right? And then all of a sudden you throw another kid into the to the factor and the, the first kid's already seen all this tremendous growth because they're just older. Yeah. <laughs> Simply that. They've just been involved in a yeah. time period. And I've also seen, like, when, when you put that in perspective, like every seven years, that's a lot of really big growth. And for some of these transition plans, they take five, seven, eight years to actually from when they begin the conversations to when they, you know, they'll get everything kind of put together with the lawyer and the accountant, and then it starts to get executed. We have a length of time that it can be seven years. And from when they started to when they actually did the corporate, you know, freeze on, on those assets, they've doubled, like they, the the value has doubled. Um, and in some cases, when you're getting that kind of increase, that also means that there's a they're reinvesting. I mean, the farmers are really good for the economy. They love to reinvest in things. And so for some of that, that means that their debt has also in- increased. Mm-hmm. It's not just one way. Like farmers no. just haven't been like. They've got, yeah, if they've got the equity, they're going to borrow against it and improve cash flow, right? So um, just to kind of circle back to the beginning and, and start to wrap this up, like what kind of advisors would say be brought in to have some of those initial conversations? Like, are you going to bring in a lawyer or an accountant or uh, somebody that's in your line of work where you're kind of specializing in these farm transitions? Like kind of paint me a picture of that and like, how does that look? Well, this is where it gets tricky because for a lot of people, it's going to be a lot of different advisors over a period of time. So um, what tends to happen, what I see a lot is that they'll pick up the phone and have the the call with the accountant because taxes are a big part of this. And you really want to manage your taxes during transition. Um, that That's like one of the, the starting points, right? So you call the accountant and they say, yeah, I, I get that you want to start transition. When you figure out what, what you kind of want to do, give me a call and we'll put a plan together. And the farmer's on the other end going, you were my plan. Like that. Yeah, that's this is going. my plan. You're supposed to help me plan. <laughs> that's right. And they're like, what do you mean? I, how do I know how, what to like, what to do? I need you to help me with that. And so 
there's some challenges with that because I think a lot of people just said, well, I just have to call my lawyer. I just need to call my accountant. And some of them are fantastic where they have teams that they can support and, and they have almost like agriculture transition teams that are, have been built into their systems that they bring somebody else in to help with the family dynamics, to help figure out what's your goals. Like, are, are we even going in the right direction? Like in some of the situations, having those conversations, is everybody still good to be a dairy farmer? An important conversation. We can't just make an assumption that that's obviously what, what the next step is, right? But those conversations aren't going to be, they're not going to be at the table with the accountant. The accountant wants, what would it, what would two or three scenarios look like? Are we staying in, in this lane? Do we have to, are we dividing? Maybe there's two brothers and while dad was in charge or mom and dad were in charge, it was fine. But the best for everybody is that, that they don't work together and we need to figure out how we're going to actually separate them. What is actually involved with transition because there is no cookie, no cookie cutter. cutter yeah no i I've, i had one guy and he's like the first five minutes that i was meeting with him he's like okay so how i want this to work is just like when i go to mcdonald's i get like combo a combo b combo c like paint me a picture of those combos and i'm like nice try like that <laughs> not today buddy <laughs> no, not how it works right um because it does like i've worked with with neighbors, very similar operations. Like they were both broiler farms, had similar kind of land, very different transition plans because the families were different. Their needs were different. So having some of that idea of what is going on right now. So I, I always start with that current state and sometimes the accountant can help you with that, but sometimes even your bankers have a really good picture of what that current state looks like. So Let's start with the business assets. What's in what's in a corporation? What's held maybe personally? Um, there's there's a lot of farms out there that have some assets in the corporation. Maybe some of the farms are owned personally, or we, like I said, have that that previous generation that maybe theirs hasn't been clarified. So what are the assets that we're even talking about for our transition? Let's get clear on that. Let's also well, get clear. On I know, like even for tax purposes, you know. Huge. People hold farms in their own personal outside of the corporation, and yep. like, like it's it's a real it's a real mucky swamp when you start to dig down into it, right? Well, and it's it's muddy for a reason. There's a mm -hmm. lot of good reasons why assets are held in different names, different companies, and and that can be really good. We just have to be clear on what who owns the assets, and mm -hmm. then. I've gone through it before where there was some assumptions. Oh, that per they owned it together or there was a tax plan based on the, the company owning it. And then you get a long way down the, the path and they realize actually it's owned personally that changes all the tax planning. You don't want to, you don't want your accountants doing things twice that costs a lot of money. So let's get clear right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so that's one part of it is, is having a clear current state. What's the profitability of the farm? And that can be maybe where your, your bankers can help you with understanding what that profitability is and what are those key ratios that you're looking at. Um, your accountants can absolutely help with figuring out some of the longer term plans, but they have to have an idea of where you're going. And the lawyers, I, I haven't really had any conversations where divorce hasn't come up in the conversation what if that next generation gets divorced and i also like because i'd like to be a devil's advocate sometimes i'm like well what if you two get divorced yeah like, exactly like it's, that's it's a that, that's a question i've seen asked farmers before like what would happen to the farm if you got hit by a bus today you're such an optimistic person right? <laughs> <laughs> but you got to think about like there's a lot of long-term planning and strategy that you got to think about and yeah. Like I, I definitely don't wish that on anybody, but <laughs> but it's a reality. Like it's it's yeah. there's farm accidents, there's car accidents, there's health issues. Like there's a thousand different caveats that you can kind of throw at this, and you just you just don't know. So you do the best planning with the information that you have at the time, right? So right, and that's where and that's the lawyer. 
aspect of it when you're yeah. talking about those wills. And a lot of people, the automatic is that they go to their lawyer and say, this is, and, and the lawyers, especially when you have specific, they've done, they've learned to work really clearly within what's going to be in a will. What, how does that make sense? There are 10, there's a lot, especially in Ontario of the primary and corporate will. So you're actually going to have two wills and they need to be actioned together. They need to mm-hmm. be completely put together. Um, but at the end of the day, the lawyer's just going to do what you want them to do. And within the I, law, within the law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of times where it would be valuable when you do a rough draft of that will and then take it back to the accountant and say, this is what I Does this thinking. make sense? Does this make sense from a tax perspective? Yeah. Because unfortunately I've seen a lot of wills actually executed. And at the end of the day, they didn't do a complete plan. They, they got their will updated because it needed to be, it was like 20 years old. So that what if situation scared the heck out of them. So they went and finally sat down with the lawyer, but they didn't take that extra step of taking it back to the accountant to say, does this make sense? And then when unfortunately it had to be executed, the tax implications of some of those wills was a lot more substantial than anybody had expected. Oh, I know. It's just uh, when you start dealing with the CRA or I assume the IRS too, because I do have some American listeners, they always get theirs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You can't fight the, you you can't beat the government. No, no. But at the same point, like when, when we start having these conversations, Um, I also encourage people not just like it's this is not a whole task in tax evasion, right? Like we're not sometimes the right thing needs to happen. And there is some level of tax that needs to be paid. That's not the worst thing that is is happening. But we do have to be clear about what we want in order to make that a reality to get to where these assets need to be. And And I also find sometimes that people get caught up in in the how like mm-hmm. oh i need a butterfly like that's that's where you're taking a corporation kind of dividing it too your accountants w- and lawyers will figure that out your job is not to figure out the tax strategy of how this is all going to happen your job is to tell them what you actually want at the end of the day yeah and then make the decision if you're okay with the cost or what with whatever to make that happen that's your job you don't have to worry if what that actual structure has to be yeah. And so that sometimes when we start and we're talking about who who's going to be doing what, like what's for your financial planners, like if you're going to be getting a whole bunch of money out and if you've never really invested anything, that's a pretty daunting task to have to work with financial planners. So that's not just wait till you get your check and then you have some conversations with a few people about where to invest the money. That's you're going to be interviewing financial planners beforehand. You're going to want to try to educate yourself to make sure that you're comfortable with the people you're giving multi-million dollars to. Yeah. So that's that's one caveat. There's your accountant or your lawyer. And in some cases, your lawyer is a real estate lawyer. And and there may be lots of family law that, that has to be um, addressed in some transition plans. Or we need, maybe there's a, a member of the family that has special needs and there needs to be a special kind of trust put in place. Not everything is going to be executed by just one lawyer. Sometimes you need specialists and that's okay. Yes, it comes with a cost, but at the same point, you know, spending the grand scheme of things. Right. And sometimes we have to take a moment to pause and say, okay, I'm spending but this million dollar asset. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's a worthwhile investment into the long-term planning of this. Um, so sometimes taking a moment just to think about what you're actually doing in the grand scheme of things, because $5,000 might feel like a lot, but when you take it back, it's, it's a worthwhile investment. Same with the accountants. You know, there's a lot of people who have their accountant for their daily operations, the compliance of it. So your, your year end, your RMP, whatever the case may be, there's a lot of your HR, um, your remittances, all that kind of stuff. But some people they need to be working with a tax specialist or a transition specialist from an accounting perspective, because this is a once in a lifetime kind of situation. So don't be shocked if you're working with a few other technical advisors that you're not necessarily dealing with on a day to day. And that's okay. You want the specialist 
in these cat in these situations because they do see this on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, did you have any kind of final thoughts as we wrap this up? We talked about a lot of different things. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) One of the biggest things is time. Um, So for the, those technical advisors, if they have time ahead of them, they can set, they can get an, an ahead of some attack strategies. They can get ahead of um, even corporate strategies. Um, but if you expect this to happen in a really short term, like months, it, 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 you're probably not going to get your best results. And it's probably going to be very, very stressful. So if you can start this process with the expectation, and we all say that it's a process, you know, it's a long-term thing. Realistically, five years is not uncommon. So just mm-hmm. to set that as an expectation is really important. A conversation I have with a lot of my senior gen or the, the older generation is you need to take some of the leadership on this. You own the assets. I get a lot of circular conversations. Well, I can't make the decisions until I know what the next generation want to do. I said, that's fair. At the same point, you have to be clear about what you're going to want. Like, what does retirement look like for you? Is that still working 40 hours a week? Or is it, you know, winters in Florida? Or, yeah, you know, what does that look like? There's some aspects of, of what you want that you can get clear on before you're having those conversations. Some of these things are happening at the same time. Um, but that that's an important aspect of it. And probably the third, and this is this is a really hard one, is that the business is the common thread here. And we have to keep an eye on that and keep an eye on the viability, keep a, um, an understanding of what's going on from a profitability perspective and being really clear. Because in some of these situations, I've seen it where mom and dad want to, um, they want to take the, the cash out. They want to, the farm to succeed. And they want to have a good re- retirement and, and help some of the other kids that can, that can happen, but it takes probably 10 years of planning to actually make that happen. That ha- does not happen by accident. Um, so again, that long, that time. So s- start early, start with some open conversations and don't be scared of bringing somebody in to be at that third party to make sure that everybody at the table has a chance to speak. And that's one of the biggest roles I play is I will engage in all the different people to make sure that they, they get their opinion out. And sometimes in some families that doesn't happen. Yeah. You just need the, you need the facilitator, somebody that brings all the stakeholders to the table, whether it be the family, the lawyers, the accountants, because this is a big, it's a big daunting task to start with. And uh, it's not easy. And I'm sure there's some real bad days uh, that go on with it, but uh, you know, it's necessary if, if, if either kids that want to come to the farm or parents that want to, you know, hand down a viable farming operation to their kids and see them succeed, you got to have these tough conversations and they're not easy, but they need to be had. So Andrea. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on. Like I mentioned yesterday when we were talking on the phone, like I really had no idea uh, what goes on in these farm transitions. Like just from my point of view is the hardest part on doing things is getting started because you don't really know what you're doing and you don't know what direction you need to go in. So to actually get the ball rolling is often the toughest part of it. So no, I, I, I appreciate your insights into this and, uh, Thank you very much again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a, was a nice conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed Supply Limited. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Schoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.